from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. Filling in for Dr. Jimmy Stewart this morning, I'm Dr. Stephen LeBlanc, a specialist in allergy and immunology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for joining us this morning. If you have any questions about your health, please give us a call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. I'm Dr. Stephen LeBlanc, filling in today for Dr. Jimmy Stewart. So if you have any questions at all about your health, please call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Happy to take any and all calls this morning um, on anything dealing with your health. In particular, my interest happens to be in allergy and immunology. So I'm born and raised in Jackson, uh, grew up in around the area, went to undergrad in the state, then went to medical school at UMC, residency, chief residency, fellowship, and now I'm I'm, I'm faculty at UMC in allergy and immunology. So that's where my uh, specialty is and my interest lies. So if you have any questions today, uh, particularly about allergies or immunology, happy to answer those, but happy to take any calls as well. Um, so what I thought I'd do today, filling in for Dr. Stewart, is to just talk a little bit about allergies in general, um, just some of the common questions that I get every day in clinic. Um, what is allergy and immunology? What do we see? What do we do? So our specialty is a subspecialty of internal medicine or pediatrics. You can do it from either way. I did internal medicine first, and then you do additional training for two years in allergy and immunology, where we mostly uh, see patients in clinic. We're heavily out, outpatient, so we do a lot of clinic. And in general, we see both, like the name implies, allergies and immunology. So uh, this time of year is a popular time for us. We have, uh, um, over the last few weeks, you may have noticed if you went outside, the yellow snow of Mississippi falling, which is uh, early in the spring when trees start to bloom. So we're starting to finally get past that now. You may notice the pollen's not covering your car quite as much. And the rain here lately has helped as well. But Uh, What that heralds is soon we'll be entering into grass season, which can be also troublesome for a lot of uh, patients and people that we see. And then uh, along with the season changes here in Mississippi, in the fall we'll run into ragweed season, which is also a big uh, issue and deal for people. So overall, allergies, how common are they? Well, they're very common, um, and they're increasingly so. So in general, up to about a third of the population has some sort of allergy or allergic type symptoms. And so that, like I said, that's increasing. Uh, they've estimated more than 50 million Americans suffer from allergies of some type, which is makes it the sixth leading cause of chronic illness in the United States and costs the healthcare system somewhere around an estimated 18 to $20 billion a year, not just in direct cost for evaluation and treatment, but also just from 
missed work days and uh, decreased productivity. So it's a it's an issue and it's a problem. And uh, and so with that common of an issue and problem, you can imagine um, there's not enough hours just to go around. So we we can remain quite busy at times, and particularly this time of year. So um, some so so in general, some common questions that I get. And like I said, I thought we'd talk about different topics, and we'll start off with allergic rhinitis, the one I've alluded to with the pollen. So uh, one common question I get is, how do you decide, so I've got these symptoms, I've got uh, water itchy eyes, runny nose, sneezing, how do I know, is this a cold or is it allergies? And that is uh, a common question we get, and a common reason people get sent to us is to try and figure out, is it, is it allergies? And so several things we do, we uh, talk to the person, talk to the patient, ask them questions and try to tease out, is this more likely allergies? Is it more likely an infection? In general, uh, one thing that can help you sort it out is time. So if you get, if you do well most of the year and then every spring you have these symptoms, that's more likely allergies. If you do well most of the year, except in the winter, you get a lot of these trouble, that can be more likely colds or viruses. And then if you have had these symptoms for weeks and weeks on end and they just don't seem to abate or go away, that's more likely allergies. Colds tend to run their course over a course, you know, over uh, days or a week or maybe two weeks, but that tends to be it unless you're getting recurrent infections. And that can be sometimes difficult to uh, tease out and uh, figure out. Um, so with allergies, um, other than taking the history, we then have our testing that we do. Uh, there's several ways we can test. We can do skin testing, and then there's also newer uh, style called blood testing. I think skin testing is probably what most people are more familiar with. Um, and so we bring you in the office and do what are called skin prick tests to these various pollens or allergens and see if you have any sensitivity. So it, it, it just kind of causes a local reaction there on the skin. And we put that with the history and can sort of diagnose it that way. All right. So that's just sort of a brief introduction of allergies in general and then specifically allergic uh, rhinitis. With that, I'm going to take a, a small interruption, and we've got a caller from uh, Biloxi, Craig. Go ahead, Craig. Tell me what, what questions do you have. Yes, uh, my friend had uh, bad pollen allergies a few years ago, and, and this year he said he went through a, a regimen and... He doesn't have any more allergies. I was wondering if there's anything, you know, almost like a cure. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, without knowing more, it's hard to know exactly what happened. But my guess is he received allergy shots. Did he mention that? I don't know what he had. I yeah. just know, you know, we were driving. I, I, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's several different ways we can manage it or treat it. Um, first, what we usually do is try medicines. It, well, first, we can try avoidance, depending on what your triggers are. So I mentioned that skin test that we can do to sort of see what some of your triggers are. Um, so we can do uh, that testing that way to try and figure out um, if there's certain things we can avoid. For example, dust mites versus cats versus certain trees. Trees and pollen are harder to avoid. If you go outside, you're exposed. If you come inside, there's pollen still inside. Um, so Right. Um, yeah, his his was outdoor pollen, okay. and and now he's outdoors and he has no problem, and he's still and he's not eating medicine. Yeah, yeah. So our goal is to you know use as least amount of medicine possible to control your symptoms. My guess is he had either allergy shots or he's on sublingual therapy. Both of them are a, a, a method of uh, what we call immunotherapy. And so the most classic thing that most people are familiar with are the shots, and that's what we've been doing them for now over a hundred years. Um, and so what you do is you take what you're allergic to and you dilute it way down. If we were to give it to you in that concentrated dose, you know, you're allergic to it, so you'd have a big reaction. So what we do is dilute it way down 
about one ten thousandth of that dose and slowly introduce it to your immune system. We give it uh, generally the shots are given subcutaneously, so just under the skin. And you build up slowly, usually over the course of about six months, uh, getting a series of these shots once or twice a week. And then the idea is you build up to that concentrated dose. And so there's several theories about how it works, but we think you're showing it to your immune system in small amounts over time up to the point of that concentrated dose. Your immune system sees it and recognizes it's not a threat and then no longer responds to it. So even when you go outside and it sees the pollen, which is the same as we're given subcutaneous, your immune system sees it and doesn't react to it. And that's the idea is we're trying to get your immune system not to react to it. Okay, and Tattoo Inc. has, I've seen allergy yeah. reactions from Tattoo Inc. Sure, yes, sir. So that's a different kind of allergy, you know, not an aeroallergen. Um, those are more of a contact dermatitis allergy, but you can have others as well. Um, but yeah, so there's certain inks. I've seen this recently in clinic. Um, when I've seen it, it's been more to the red ink, but it can, it doesn't have to be. But what, to use some of those pigments to get that permanent coloring, they'll use heavy metals sometimes. Red is cadmium. Um, there's some others, cobalt that's used. And metals are somewhat of a common uh, allergen as well when introduced to the skin. You hear a lot of people that have rashes when they wear cheap jewelry, certain uh, belt buckles, the metal on your pants sometimes, or cheap earrings, necklaces. Any of that nickel is the most common, but it can be others. But you'll get a rash where that metal touches you. Same thing with that tattoo. It's made of metal or other pigments, and you can react to that. And so uh, the trouble with that is it just kind of has to run its course. You can get laser therapy, but it's already been introduced. And so removing it can help, but sometimes it just has to run its course, scar up, and then uh, I've seen... Usually, I've seen where after that they no longer react to it. Yeah, yeah. The one, I, the, the tattoo I saw like that, it was it was a huge sore on the fella. Absolutely, it can it can scar and form a big uh, what's called a granuloma. Yes, sir. All right, thank you, okay. Craig, for your questions. All right, we've got another caller from uh, also down on the coast, Long Beach, Wendy. What 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 can we help you with today? Um, I have been on the back on the coast actually for about a year. I got back, got a sinus infection, my ears got clogged up in last April, and it has happened. It's just like continual. It comes like, and it, the only time it's gone is about two weeks, and then it comes back. I took antibiotics, Flonase, Allegra, uh, you name it. I've had it. Um, they did a CT scan on my sinuses. Those are clear, but my ears are continually clogged, continually ringing. And I just wondered if you had any like suggestions beyond what I'm already doing. They haven't done allergy testing. Okay. And what what are you doing right now? Besides, I know you mentioned you've tried uh, some things. What are you doing right now? Um, Flonase, mm-hmm. uh, Allegra, once a day, 24-hour Allegra, and um, uh, Sudafed, prescription Sudafed. Okay. It seems to help with the ringing, but, it, you know. It, and you mentioned the ringing. Yeah. Is it fullness, too, like a, just a stuffiness, like cotton in your ear? Uh, yeah, like echo, mm-hmm. like I'm in an echo chamber. But no drainage, no fevers, anything like that? No fever. Um, I have, like, after it rains, if when the pressure changes, the barometric mm-hmm. pressure, mm-hmm. I will, my sinuses will get clogged, and sometimes it'll, like, I mean, it'll even come out my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it goes back to just being my ears. So most of the time you don't have nasal congestion with it, other than those times? Not too much. I mean, uh, no, not really. Have you flown on an airplane somewhat recently? No. Okay. 
sometimes people that have what you're having and they fly on a plane, they have a whole lot more trouble and trouble equalizing that pressure. So several mm-hmm. things could be going on. It could be what we call chronic eustachian tube dysfunction. So you have a tube that drains or connects mm-hmm. from the back of your ear to the back of your nose. And it's mm-hmm. there to equalize pressure. You know, pressure can, every time you swallow, when, you, um, when you're eating or just swallowing, you can get air in that middle ear cavity. And that tube uh-huh. equalizes that pressure. And when you test it is when you fly. So they change the pressure. And so um, it changes faster than your ear can equalize. That's why you get that big buildup of pressure until it pops finally. That's and it relieves it. itself. That you can also so that tube itself is designed to mostly stay closed, but it opens at times. But it but you can also get uh, where it can't open because of pressure, whether that's due to allergies or due to a chronic infection or a viral illness um, or chronic sinusitis, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. All of these things can keep that tube from opening and draining or equalizing mm-hmm. pressure. And so um, you're doing some of the right things. Flonase can help with that. Afrin mm-hmm. can help sometimes. You don't want to use Afrin more than about three days in a row by itself. Right. If you com- if you combine it with uh, with the Flonase, some of our patients we can do it once a day and, and keep using it um, with that. Mm-hmm. But anything you can do to kind of open that eustachian tube uh, can help. Sudafed can help. I don't recommend that long term just because of its effect on blood pressure, risk of heart yeah. attack, stroke, that kind of thing. Yeah, it does raise my blood pressure. Yeah, so I do. I do think you might, depending on the rest of your history, be a candidate for allergy testing just to see if that. What, the idea there is is that why you're staying swollen and keeping those uh, eustachian tubes from opening. Finally, after that, seeing an ear, nose, and throat doctor, letting them go down with a camera and look at those tubes to see if there's a reason as well. Uh If there's a reason that they're obstructed or not opening. And then there's a procedure that can be done where they actually put a balloon into it and open that tube to help it drain. Um, Not everybody's a candidate for that, however. So you'd Mm -hmm. uh, you'd need to see a qualified otolaryngologist or ENT to decide. Yes, ma'am. A quick question. um, I've been to a couple of ENTs. I had this about 15 years ago. Same mm-hmm. thing, same, you know, last forever, wouldn't go away. Yeah. I went to an ENT, and they pierced my eardrums. Yes. And it went away. Okay. And it hasn't come back until now. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that might be a decent option. Maybe. It depends. It depends on if there's just air behind there or fluid. If it's fluid and it won't come out and it keeps getting infected and it stays there more than six weeks, sometimes they will do that, create a hole there. Sometimes they'll just incise it and drain it, and sometimes they'll create a hole and put a tube in place. You see that a lot more with kids that get recurrent ear infections. Adults get it less right. so because of the angle of our ear our, our, uh, eustachian tubes, um, but it can happen. But uh, uh-huh. it really just needs to be looked at and evaluated to decide that. Um, and then there's something called an ear popper you can also look into buying and trying. I, I, I use it myself. I have chronic eustachian tube dysfunction. And you can buy one of these at Walmart, Walgreens, anywhere, and it just pushes the air and tries to open that um, that. Uh, equalize that pressure, open that tube itself as, as well. An okay. ear popper. Ear popper. It just blows air. Just Google it. They're, they can be 30 to 50 bucks, but it's worth it if you have this trouble chronically. Oh, it would be well. <laughs> Give it a try. Anything that would work. Yes, ma'am. Give it a try, and if that doesn't work, see an ENT or an allergist. All right. Well, thank you for your call. All right. So uh, we're going to take another break now, and uh, we'll be back to answer some more of your questions. So you're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We're answering your medical questions today. If you have any questions, call one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We'll be back with more of your phone calls after this break.
This is Southern Remedy for Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. I'm Dr. Stephen LeBlanc, filling in today for Dr. Jimmy Stewart. So if you have any questions about your health, any questions about anything at all, uh, but particularly allergies and immunology, call one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So we've had a couple of questions so far this morning uh, talking about allergies, treatments, um, and was briefly getting into some of the uh, things we do besides avoidance. Then we try medications. Um, there's a number that are over the counter now just because they've been around so long and they have a good safety profile. And so some of these things you, you've probably seen uh, just on the aisles at uh, your local pharmacy, but it can be overwhelming trying to decide which one do you choose, which one works, which one doesn't, um, how do you use them, uh, can you can they stop working, all those things. So usually what we do is, depends on the m- main symptom, is it mostly your eyes, is it your nose, is it drainage, is it sneezing, it helps us decide which medicine to use. But in general, the ones that are over the counter, most people reach for an antihistamine first, just one of the ones you can taste, uh, take by mouth. And there's different brands, no, no particular brand uh, do we favor over the other. But uh, um, uh, beyond that, uh, nasal steroids are a good option for most patients, also different brands that you're probably familiar with. Um, and, and none necessarily work better than the others, but some are tolerated better than others. Some have more alcohol, some have a certain scent to it. So different patients have different preferences there. And those are sort of the two that we reach for first. They're over the counter. Like I said, they have a good safety profile. They are effective. The nasal steroid tends to treat more symptoms than the antihistamine, as the, their commercial likes to say, which is true. Um, but uh, beyond that, we start getting into some of the prescription medications. And then beyond that, we start getting into the talk on allergy shots, as we talked about with our first caller. All right. So we've got a, a um, couple of callers uh, on the line waiting as well. So let's go to our first caller here. Okay. All right. So uh, they're still working on that. So we got a couple of email questions as well. Let me um, go address the first one, which is, can allergies get better uh, as we age? And um, for that matter, can they get worse as we age? And so that that depends. Um, You know, we used to not see allergies start that much. Um, in adulthood, it used to be something, you know, a, a childhood disease. You either had it or you didn't when you were a kid. And as you grew older, you might grow out of it and you might not. But as an adult, you didn't typically develop it. You saw it some, but not much. But we're seeing it more and more now where uh, people didn't really have much trouble at all with their allergies. And then all of a sudden they do now as adults. And then we're also seeing the, the still seeing the other way where you had it as a kid and then tend to outgrow it without really doing much about it. So it can be unpredictable. We don't know why we're seeing more of it as adults or why we're seeing more of it in general. There's there's several theories. There's something called a uh, hygiene hypothesis where we just live too clean nowadays. You don't get enough dirt in your mouth and your hands when you're a kid. And so uh, your immune system sees it, sees, looks at it this way. If you're, if you're not seeing these viruses and bacteria, then these other things, the pollen must be dangerous. And so it mounts an immune response to it. It's probably more complicated than that. That's maybe part of it, but it's probably more complicated than that. There's also concerns or questions. Is it something changing in our environments or changing in our genes? Uh, probably a little bit of all of those things. There's some evidence that as the climate warms, um, certain things like asthma, food allergies, all those things can become more common. Allergies, seasonal allergies become more common as the seasons are longer, pollen's around longer, all those things. So yes, it can change as we age, but the, the, um, 
the longer answer is it's it's more variable. All right, so we'll go to our uh, first caller uh, waiting on the line, Steve. What what can I do for you, Steve? I got a question um, about venom allergies. Yeah. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, well, actually, about a little, a little over a year now, I got stung by three yellow jackets. Yes, sir. And went in five minutes later, full-blown anaphylaxis. Mm. Yes, sir. And the which I've got the venom shots and all that, and I've been doing that, but I've never really got a straight answer on if I get stung again, should I immediately use the EpiPen or, you know, wait to see what happens? That's a excellent question. Um, and so yes, venom, I did, I didn't bring up venom, but venom like arrow allergens is something that we can do shots for. And it sounds like you have, um, and interestingly, it's actually one of the most effective things we do. They're actually even more effective than the shots we do against, uh, seasonal allergies like pollen. Um, they reduce your chance of a severe life-threatening reaction like you had by over 90%, upwards to 95%. Um, and so, the same similar idea as you know, as you start off on a low amount and you build up slowly uh, over a period of about six to eight weeks to where you're on the stronger dose. And it depends on which insects you're allergic to. The ones we usually test and treat to are yellow jackets, like you mentioned, wasps, honeybees, and hornets. Um, we also do fire ants. Um, they're a little bit different, though. Um, there are people that can have the same reaction to fire ant stings. But usually we do these. Um, venom shots uh, for a number of years or depending on the reaction lifelong um, and, and as mentioned they do significantly reduce, do reduce your risk for a reaction most of my patients so we do still have them carry an epinephrine syringe um, and if they get stung what we usually advise them is don't immediately eject, inject the epinephrine like you would have but you know do see what kind of reaction you have if you just have a local reaction there where you got stung and nothing beyond that you don't need to use the epinephrine because the that's what the point of the allergy shot is is to hopefully reduce your risk of having that reaction potentially even saving your life now if any point after you get stung it goes beyond that to where you're starting to have shortness of breath swelling feel like your throat's closing then we would say use the epinephrine and not only that but present to a, a nearest uh you know emergency room or somewhere where you can get evaluated quickly Okay. Well, um, the lady that gives me the shots, I mean, she told me just to go ahead and use it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't hurt anything because what? with mine, yeah. I, I fainted right away. Mm-hmm. So she said if I was out, you know, by myself, I wouldn't. So it does depend. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does depend on what your reaction was. Like you said, if you had a syncopal event immediately, that's reasonable, especially if you're by yourself and there's no one else around that could help you or monitor you or give the injection. Um, so that's reasonable. Um, but you, most of the time, I don't encourage my patients to do it automatically. But it does depend on the patient, like you said. If you passed out immediately, and then I have some patients that didn't, you know, necessarily have the severe low blood pressure, trouble breathing. So it it, it does depend. Yeah. Well, the one I had was real violent. So. Yeah, yeah, and they can be. I mean, uh, there's a number of Americans that die each year because of insect stings, uh, uh, flying insects, and fire ants. But, uh, so yeah, the shot, if it did its job, your reaction shouldn't be as severe, but it, you know, the only way to, you know, we don't challenge people. And so the only way to know would be if it happened again, obviously you try to avoid it best you can. You always have a end date epinephrine syringe if you can, and, um, um, you know, be cautious. And, uh, I, it, it, there's not a right or wrong answer as far as should you use the epinephrine immediately right. or not. Yes, sir. And well, do you, 
Go ahead. Do you recommend going to the hospital after you, if you have to use that? Absolutely. Anesthesia? Absolutely. We do encourage yeah. all of our patients to do that. And the reason is epinephrine is short-acting, and so it'll work, and then it wears off quicker than the reaction might. That's why it also usually comes with two syringes, so you have a second to use if you needed it. But uh, we do recommend going there just so they can keep an eye on you, give you further doses if needed, and just you know support you if you needed it, whether it's IV fluids, whether you needed airway protection, all of those things. Uh, anaphylaxis is unpredictable, meaning you could get stung this time and have a mild reaction, and the next time be severe. Now, with you having undergone shots, you shouldn't be that way, but if, you, if you're just naive, I mean. Um, and so it can be unpredictable, um, and not just venom, but that's the case with food allergies, the case with uh, drug allergies as well. It can be unpredictable. So, yeah, I do recommend uh, evaluation. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Sure thing. Thank you for your call. All right. And we're going to go straight to Victoria as well. Uh, Victoria, what, what questions do you have? Hi. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Thank you. Very well. Thanks. Traveling on the road, uh, Florida to Arkansas. Oh, I, I love your pro- Love your program. Um, I think somebody or may have not asked a question, but it sounded like you sort of answered my question. 61 years old, never had any allergies. Now I live in Arkansas. Uh, people, I hear them suffering from pollen. Praise God, I haven't had that. Um, so I think I heard you say that it can depend just on anything that you could. I've never had it. Maybe it will happen when I turn 65. I hope not or whatever. You know, it can bring that on. Is that correct? It doesn't really have any age, race, rhyme, reason, right? Somewhat. Like I said, it, you know, we can see it at any time. It's less likely the older you get. Um, you know, if, oh, you, if you've not had any by now, you're less likely to have it. Uh, but we are oh. seeing more adults, particularly like with asthma. You know, they didn't have asthma as a child. But they're seeing it. We're mm-hmm. seeing it more now show up in adults, um, just sort of more in their 40s and 50s, though. It's it's unusual to, you know, not show up with allergies or asthma to your 70s or 80s, for example. And there's also well, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm just so, saying, interesting. There's also uh, a crossover between asthma and COPD. So a lot of these patients, even though they may be diagnosed with asthma, it may, be, it may look at times more like a, a, a chronic lung disease, not necessarily like classic asthma like we think about. That was allergic asthma, for example. Uh, so they have what's called reactive airway disease. So if they're around smells or other certain triggers, they may have shortness of breath and wheezing. We treat it similarly, but the genetics is different. And so that's the part we don't fully understand right just yet. We're, it's advancing mm-hmm. rapidly we understand it way more than we did just 10 years ago and so we're trying to break oh, these sure. patients down into what kind of asthma do you have why do you maybe do you have it what triggers could there be and then try, mm-hmm. and the ultimate goal of that is to see if there's a different different uh difference in treatment do we treat these patients differently do they respond differently so so oh, yeah sure. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. well interesting and also um I have a very good friend who has had asthma since she was a little girl, but um, I study nutrigenomics yeah. and um, quite because I had a dog training company in Miami, Florida for 30 years. And I noticed uh, a new dog that I got is scratching quite a bit, and I know mm-hmm. it's got to be food sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Do you deal in any of that? I know there are some testing for people for their pets. Yes. No. Do I test pets, are you saying? Yes, sir. No, I don't. <laughs> I think there are vet, veter, veterinarians that would do that, but no, we don't. We we treat adults and kids, but we draw the line there. We don't. We don't see. I uh, hear you. Those four-legged fur babies. And one yes. other question for you, real sure. quick. Is there any type of? Because I know what you put in your mouth has a lot to do with you know your what's going to happen to you. So if you did have a food allergy, I mean, or just a an allergic reaction to pollen or an ant. Let's say I started getting a pollen issue, which I'm glad I won't because I'm past 60. <laughs> Is there? <laughs> it's not going to happen, I'm telling you. 
uh, placebo. So is there something I can share with people that I know who have it, uh, that they could change anything in their diet or it's just, just we don't know that. So that, you know, I talked about okay. the hypothesis of why is it becoming more common. That's part of it is our food is okay. changing as well. Our diet is drastically different than it was 50 years ago. Oh, and, yeah. And they've looked yeah. at populations, for example, like the Amish and the Mennonites that have sort of uh-huh. their local food source. And, and, and again, mm-hmm. that's going back to that hygiene hypothesis, too. They also work in the dirt and, and, and you know, use more um, – farming equipment where they actually use it by hand they these people have significantly lower rates of allergy and food allergy and seasonal allergies and so that supports your theory of is something in our diet as well um interestingly Mm -hmm. if you look at modern farming where we use more equipment and not getting exposed to the animals and the dirt there is no difference Mm -hmm. in their rate of allergy in in the general population and so it's it's something to do with being out there in the environment the soil and probably like you alluded to your diet as well the more processed the Mm -hmm. more you know chemicals and things that are in your food who knows what we're doing we don't we don't exactly know how that affects the immune system but i mean common oh, sense okay. would tell you it probably does to some extent i would think so but i'm so glad i played in dirt when i was a kid yeah. and thank you so much for sure your thing. time i love your no, program i thank- love someone to get on have a great day thank you for your call be careful driving all right we're going to take another break here um so you're listening to southern remedy with mpv think radio answering your medical questions any questions you may have if you have one, call one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll be right back with more of your phone calls after this break. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy, where the doctor's always in. I'm Dr. Stephen LeBlanc, filling in today for Dr. Jimmy Stewart. If you have any questions at all about your health, please call one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 So I'll be here the rest of the hour taking any phone calls you may have. Well, in between phone calls, we're talking about allergies and um, from top to bottom. Rhinitis, asthma, talk a little bit about. Plan to talk a little bit about food allergies um, drug allergies, and then finally, I'd like to end the show talking a little bit about uh, vaccines if we have time. All right, so we got one caller uh, from Gulfport, Mississippi. Pascal, what questions do you have? Hi, um, thanks for the uh, for the information. Learned a lot on the program. I did have a question as it relates to food allergies in children. Yeah. My son has had uh, food allergies largely to gluten and uh, some other things since he was young. And we're just wondering about how it might uh, be outgrown, maybe the likelihood that he would outgrow it and how you would uh, go about knowing if it's uh, if it's been outgrown. Yeah. So you mentioned gluten. What, anything else that your, your son is allergic to? 
Yeah, gluten, rice, and a lot of other uh, grains, but okay. mainly, uh, mainly gluten. So uh, one tricky part of food allergy is trying to decide or determine what kind of allergy it is. Um, in, in our field, usually we're, when we're talking about food allergy, we, we're talking about an IgE-mediated reaction, meaning you're making an antibody to it. That's what you think about when you think about people that are allergic to peanuts or shellfish, and they eat it and immediately have a reaction. With gluten, it can be different. You can have a gluten sensitivity, which is celiac disease, or you could also have that antibody against wheat uh, and have that wheat allergy. Um, the difference is the gluten sensitivity or celiac is, uh, is through a different mechanism, and so it's a little more delayed and tends to be more chronic, whereas the IgE to peanuts, shellfish, cow's milk, you can be allergic to anything, but we have seven or eight that are more common. Those are usually more immediate. They can be more immediately life-threatening. And kind of the ones you think about. So those are the ones we usually address and treat. And then GI tends to treat celiac disease more than we do. Um, I'm not sure if your son has celiac or an, another variant. No. He doesn't? Okay. No, no, it's definitely an allergy. Okay. Uh, so for that, well, first thing we do is take a history and see, you know, when they ate the suspected food, what happened? How quickly did it happen? How quickly did it resolve? Did it require treatment? What did they get to receive treatment? Um, and then if the story is right, we do food allergy testing, uh, e again, either through the skin prick or we can do it by blood looking for that antibody. Uh, we prefer skin. It's a little more sensitive, but with something like food where even a, if you were to introduce a small amount to the skin, you could cause a reaction. Sometimes we'll do the blood first. And if that's negative, progress to the skin. It depends on the story. Um, once you do that, you're either getting a positive or a negative with the right story. If you confirm it, uh, right now we're sort of limited to um, avoidance and carrying an epinephrine de device like we were talking about with the gentleman with the venom allergy. If it's negative um, and then the right story, we'll do what's called a food challenge where we bring them into the office and have them eat small amounts of that food up to a, a certain dose and observe them. Um, and it just depends on the history, like everything else, which way we go. You, your main question, though, is can you outgrow it? And the answer is depends on that as well. But, yes, you can, especially with kids. We see a lot of things like cow's milk, uh, wheat, soy. Um, these kind of foods tend to be outgrown by five years of age, and some, not all, but other things like peanuts or shellfish, much less likely to outgrow. So it depends on what the food is. But is it possible? Yes. Tw peanut allergy in kids, 20% will outgrow. That still leaves 80% that won't. And then if you're an adult and you develop a shellfish allergy, it's virtually unheard of that you'll lose that or outgrow it. Um, if you do, it makes me suspect you maybe didn't have it at all. Maybe it was you know a different food and we just misattributed it or uh, one of those cases. But there hasn't been a, a case of outgrowing that. So it, with with weed or celiac, it's 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 one of those that you could potentially outgrow um, with time, and that varies. We used to say you know by adolescence. Now it looks like even more, closer to 18 years of age. Um, the chance of outgrowing it, like I said, depends on the food, but it's not quite as high as what we used to think. Does I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, I think so. I think we're uh, certainly hoping that it uh, can be outgrown, sure. but uh, so, it's oh, not quite as uh, dramatic as uh, celiac. So One thing you said is how do you know if they outgrow it? And so usually what we do, if they had a positive skin test or blood test, we'll usually repeat that every couple of years, depending on what the level was and what the food was. And once it reverts to negative, we do that oral challenge to see if they've outgrown it. Got it. Yes, sir. Got it. Yes, sir. Thank, Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for your call. All right. We're going to go now to uh, Wesson and uh, speak to Debbie. Debbie, how are you doing this so, morning? I have a um, comment for the lady who has the dog that she yeah. has food sensitivities. 
And I also have a question about people who carry EpiPens. Sure. Okay. Number one, for the dog, my dog had them severely. Mm-hmm. And I switched him over to Blue Buffalo Lamb and Rice. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive, but it made all the difference in the world in him. And he also had cancer. Oh. And it just made all the difference in the world in him. Yeah. I've, you know, I've heard of... Um Certainly, they exist in animals, and I've heard of um, you know veterinarians that do treat it. They'll even put them on allergy shots, similar to how we will with people. And so, certainly, um, there are certain foods that they tolerate better than others, and certain brands as well. I wouldn't recommend the one with the fish, though. It makes their breath smell awful. <laughs> okay. And then uh, about the people who carry EpiPens, yes. as does my youngest son. Yes, ma'am. If they are going to be out in an area where they know they have the possibility of being stung or bitten by what they react to, would it be prudent for them to take some Benadryl before going out? Uh, So that's controversial. I would say no. And here's the reason why is what you don't. So Benadryl can treat certain milder reactions, typically mostly just skin, like itching and rash. If you get stung by something you're allergic to or if you ate something you're allergic to, the rash is not what's going to kill you. So the Benadryl can help with the rash and itching. Um, but what you may be doing is masking a severe reaction where they still may you know, have trouble breathing. They still may get throat may close. They may uh, drop their now blood he, pressure. He's an adult. I mean, so sure. I, you know, he would know whether he Right. But, but the problem is you may not know in time. And so what kills people is delayed epinephrine. And so he, you know, using it early is, is, is what uh, works better. Once the cascade's already been set off and you use it late, uh, it doesn't work as well. So I, I don't recommend that. Now, that's not to say if you had a reaction. We talked about with other gentlemen, if you had a mild reaction and you only had the rash and itching and nothing else, you can still take Benadryl uh, for the symptoms. But I, I would just have a low threshold to use the epinephrine. Uh, you know, if you know you're allergic and you know you got stung, um, certainly wouldn't recommend treating that just with Benadryl. Oh, no, no, not just with Benadryl. Mm-hmm. I was asking would it be prudent to go ahead and take Benadryl before you went out into that area where there was a possibility, because you it, you may be an hour getting there. Right. I wouldn't recommend it just for those reasons stated. You know, you just the potential for masking a reaction. Um, you know, okay. it, and, and in general, we'll use other things besides Benadryl, too. Some of the other antihistamines that don't have the sedative effect, um, but can work as well as from a histamine standpoint, you know, most of our patients are usually going to take that for other allergies anyway. And so there's no necessarily contraindication or reason they couldn't take that. Um, but it would have less, less, you know, likely to mask some, uh, anaphylactic symptoms. Okay. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, thank you for sure. taking my call. Out. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, the comment on the dog and for your question. Thank you, uh, for listening as well. All right. So, uh, we touched on, uh, some food allergies there, which is where we're going to talk about anyway next. So what I, some of the things I wanted to bring up was some of the new studies you may have heard of with peanut. And so one thing we've learned recently is early introduction of peanut may be uh, better as far as preventing uh, some allergies. The one that's been studied is peanut so far. We can't really comment on other foods yet, like shrimp or cow's milk or wheat, but the study showed peanut. And so the big thing is uh, in the study, it was high-risk kids, so kids that had eczema or they had an egg allergy. Or, um, um, so these are not every, you know, this is not necessarily a recommendation for every child, but in the study it showed that introducing peanuts to those kids around four to six months seemed to lower their risk for developing peanut allergy later. Um, and so that's been something that's really changed our practice over the last few years. And 
Um, and I think what we'll see going forward, a lot of people that I see in clinic questions they have is, you know, what treatments are coming out later for food allergy? And this is really an area that's probably going to greatly change and expand over the coming years. Um, and so there are some therapies that they're developing, therapies that you drop under your tongue, therapies that you wear on your skin, patches. That's The first one that's been studied is peanut. And so they slowly release this peanut protein. And the idea is not that you would be cured or could eat all the uh, peanuts you wanted, but if your child accidentally ate a peanut, they, they would have a much milder reaction, similar to what we talked about with the venom shots. And so these are currently under development. They're not ready uh, to be used by everybody yet. The FDA hasn't approved them yet. Um, and, so, and, and there's been some mixed results so far with the trials, but I, I do think, you know, with time, uh, that's probably where we're going as far as treatment. So it won't just be, hey, avoid it, don't eat it, and carry this epinephrine and hope you, hope you don't have any trouble. So we are getting closer and closer to treating it and hopefully even curing it. I, I, I would imagine some of our lifetimes there may even be a cure for a lot of food allergies, but we'll, we shall see. All right, so thank everyone for their uh, questions this uh, segment. We're going to take another break now. Um, so uh, you're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We're answering your medical questions today. If you have any, please call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be back with more of your phone calls after this break. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. I'm Dr. Stephen LeBlanc, filling in today for Dr. Jimmy Stewart. So if you have any questions in this uh, last 10 minutes or so, please call one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 I'll try my best to get to all the callers we have left. All right. Let's go to um, Alabama and speak to Lynn. Hello. Hey, Lynn. Hey, I, I'm not sure this is an allergy, but it is abdominal. And, um, I mean, at younger days, I could eat anything, everything, and a lot of it, and never seem to have any problem. I'm 56 years old now, um, and what tends to, to happen sometimes is I tend to have pain. Sometimes it's in what you would call the, around the solar plexus. It hurts all the way through to my back, and I don't know if it's back pain hurting my stomach or stomach pain hurting my back, and then sometimes I get a lower gut kind of down more in the bladder region, and then I'll have um, a looser, t- not, a, not, not diarrhea that I've got to run for, but looser type movements. Um, and I'll have a so I'm sorry, I think Lynn cut out there for the for the second half of that question, but I, to address the first part, 
just here in that brief description, of course, it, there would be a lot more questions to ask and um, to obtain, but it does not sound like most of that was an allergy. There's a difference between what we call allergy and sensitivity, and you can have sensitivity or allergy to most any food. Um, and you can develop sensitivities later in life, too, and they can be to do different things like enzyme deficiencies. For example, the one people think about and know about is lactose and lactase. Uh, so if you eat a lot of milk or, or eat a lot of ice cream or drink a lot of milk or eat, eat a lot of cheese, you can have symptoms. And so it's not uh, necessarily an allergy. You're just missing this enzyme to break down that sugar. And then there can be other functional uh, issues that develop with the GI tract. So functional constipations and functional loose stools, all those can happen. They can be driven by foods, but it's not necessarily uh, immune mediated. So you don't necessarily make antibodies. And then there can be other immune reactions that our tests aren't as sensitive for picking up. T-cell mediated reactions that tend to be more delayed, like we talked about a little bit with celiac disease. Um, and so it really... It, takes a pretty uh, thorough in, uh, investigation in, uh, uh, to sort of hash out which one that could be, and it really just depends on kind of the history and the exam and some tests that can be done as well. So I'm sorry we got the second part of that, missed the second part of that question. I'm going to go to the next caller, uh, Craig in Biloxi. Hey, Craig. Hey, good morning. Uh, I was wondering if you have any familiarity with a leaky gut uh, and if it gets better or with time. Yeah, so um, I do have a, a couple of patients with um, uh, supposed leaky gut syndrome. And I say that just because it's hard to confirm. It's a clinical diagnosis and sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, and the idea is, you know, um, the intestines can, due to inflammation or um, whether it's autoimmune, there can be um, breakdown of the wall. And so you can leak proteins and, and contents um, into the abdominal cavity. And obviously there can be symptoms involved with that. We don't fully understand this process. Um, and like I said, it's a more of a clinical diagnosis uh, so far. Usually if we see someone we suspect, we send it to gastroenterology uh, for further evaluation. Right now, um, you know, there's several um, treatments that have been tried, but um, we don't necessarily, or at least me personally, I don't know the perfect uh, treatment for it so far. Um, again, usually I'm, I'm referring those to the gastroenterologist when I find them. All right, going to go over to uh, Mikey in uh, Mobile for the next question. How are you, Mikey? Hey, good morning and welcome. Uh, uh, my questions are uh, cucumbers and green peppers. Mm-hmm. A couple of things about them. Uh, cooked, as in pickled, fine, which is chemically cooked, right? Correct. Um, green peppers, uh, for years I could not eat them without intense and immediate abdominal pain. I mean, it was like blowing up in a most unpleasant way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's recently I have found uh, peppers that came from a farmer's market that uh, that don't affect me in that way. I can eat them raw. Mm -hmm. And that was the question with both of them, the cucumbers and the green peppers. Eating them cooked, whether regularly with heat or microwave or, yeah, yeah. or chemically. So yeah. let me ask um, you, do you have um, symptoms of uh, seasonal allergies in the fall? Symptoms of what? Seasonal allergies, like runny nose, watery itchy eyes in the fall? Um. I don't know, because I usually take cetirizine, okay. and um, uh, they, it really doesn't, if I do have them, I'm surrounded by woods, um, mm -hmm. lots 
oaks, lots of magnolias, lots of pecans, you you name it, it produces pollen. It makes a yellow car. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, the reason I ask is, so with those two foods in particular, there's something called oral allergy syndrome, where you can, if you eat certain foods, you can get itching around the mouth. It can get sometimes even a rash and either even systemic symptoms of itching and GI symptoms like you talked about. And what it is is, uh, with cucumber in particular, it's a cross-reactivity between that and ragweed. Your body's immune system can't tell the difference between the ragweed pollen and that cucumber, and so it thinks it's the same ragweed and it's mounting an immune response to it. In these patients, um, if you cook it, it breaks that protein down and they can tolerate it and do just fine, but if they eat it raw, uh, they can have those symptoms. And we see it with cucumber, and we see it with some other foods that you mentioned, like the pepper. We see it with other things, too, like people can have it with apples if they're allergic to a birch, Um, and there's other pollens that can do it, too, like if you're sensitive to latex, bananas can do it, avocado, uh, kiwi can do it where you have itching around the mouth. So it's um, it's a, certainly something we see called oral allergy syndrome. I don't know for sure that's what you have, but it sure does sound like it's a possibility. Treatment, you, you can avoid it. Uh, usually it's very rare for it to cause a systemic reaction like anaphylaxis. It's been documented, but it's very rare. And, and like I said, usually if you cook it or, if you, as you have found, pickling it seems to break that protein down to where it's tolerated. I've been pretty lucky then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Sure thing. Thank you for your call. All right. Just the last couple of minutes, I wanted to briefly talk about vaccines and um, uh, some of the common questions that I receive on these. Uh, especially it's been pertinent in the news lately with some of the uh, outbreaks of measles. And we get a lot of questions here lately about it. So just wanted to mention that. So this is not to be controversial, but with vaccines, obviously, uh, like any medication, there are adverse reactions. There's no doubt they occur with vaccines as well. Um, But uh, vaccines are one of the most uh, successful medical interventions we've had so far, probably second only to hand hygiene and water, clean water sources. Um, so there, as far as severe reactions, occurs in about one per million dose of, the, uh, of a vaccine, and we give over 220 doses per year in the U.S. We do have this system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Uh, the good and bad of it is anybody can report to it, so it catches, it's a wide net, can catch most. The bad news, anybody can report to it, so you don't necessarily know that it was the vaccine that caused it uh, that gets linked to these. One common question I get, so especially with measles, is so does it cause autism? As best as we can find, and we've got a plethora of data now uh, that has come out in the last several decades is that there's no link between the two. This came up from a study that was published in 98 that linked it uh, over in the UK, which has now been redacted. And so there was another one that came out just last month with 600,000 kids in Denmark, which showed no link. So try to encourage patients uh, and parents that, um, to best of our knowledge, there's no link. Um, and so um, like I said, I get a lot of these questions, and we're happy to talk about it uh, in the clinic. There's a lot of evidence for vaccines, and of course, like I said, they're not 100% safe, and so I do sympathize with parents and their concerns. All right, so thank you up to everyone for calling in uh, for their questions, and we hope you got some useful information about your health. So Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded in part by the Grant University of Mississippi Medical Center and from listeners like you. Dr. Uh, Jimmy will be back here next Wednesday morning at 11 to answer your medical questions. Stay tuned for Here Now next on MPB Think Radio.